Thanks for tuning in to NL News Day, Thursday, October the 21st. All right, let's not waste any time here. Pleased to be joined now by the leader of the BC Green Party. It is Sonia Furstenow. Sonia, thanks for the time. How are you doing here this afternoon? Well, great to be talking to you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Well, appreciate you coming on here. I, uh, first thing I want to ask is just uh, how did that earthquake drill go this morning? Were you, uh, were you able to get out safely? We, uh, yeah, we all ducked and covered under our desks and then uh, our uh, handy floor wardens uh, made sure that we all got out safely. And I'll tell you, we were standing out there. We have a team right now of five staff and uh, Adam, the MLA for Senate North and the Islands and me. And we're standing out there in our little team and looking around at the hundreds of other people. And I thought, Wow, we, we get a lot done for one tiny little team in this place. <laughs> yeah, it really helps put it in perspective when you see everyone out on the lawn together, eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, glad to hear that that went smoothly. Let's let's get into some of the business of the day here. Uh, we'll start with the reason you were unable to join me here yesterday, and that is because uh, yeah. you were called back in uh, over this vote of oil and gas permit holders. I guess it sounds to me, and based on the statements I've seen from yourself, is that uh, they are now not making oil and gas companies, I guess, clean up their dormant wells as quickly as they would mm -hmm. have been required to prior to last night. So what, what's going on? What's the big change here? Yeah, so there was a, a bill in 2019 that was passed that put uh, a timeline on, uh, on the cleanup requirements of dormant wells. And the amendment that passed yesterday in the Miscellaneous Statutes Act gives the Oil and Gas Commission the ability to uh, provide extensions and flexibilities to companies uh, to get those dormant wells uh, decommissioned and cleaned up. And the, the problem that we have with this, I mean, there was a number of problems that, that uh, were identified in the um, committee stage. One was when we asked about the consultation that happened with First Nations, which is, as you know, part of the requirements under the Declaration of Rights and Indigenous Peoples Act. And many of these wells, as we know, are uh, obviously on uh, the territories of First Nations. Uh, we were told that 54 letters were sent out July 2nd with a deadline of 45 days to respond and that two nations responded. One uh, identified no problems with the proposed amendments and the other one did identify problems. And when we queried this a little bit further, uh, it was clear that this wasn't consultation. This was, as Adam put it, engagement. Mm -hmm. You send a letter and you wait for a response. You don't get it. That's not consultation. That's, you know, doing the bare minimum. But the other thing that um, we pointed out was what was going on in July and August of this year, Jeff. <laughs> well, we had a massive wildfire season, right? Mm -hmm. We had people fleeing their homes, evacuated, uh, and we know that uh, that season impacts uh, First Nations very significantly. And when we pointed this out, like you sent a letter and you gave people 45 days to respond, and they didn't, and that you considered that sufficient consultation. I think that that's an example of of really not meeting a very uh, a very low bar. I, I just am am struggling to understand why this would even have come forward. Because like, how how does you know allowing people to or companies to sort of mm -hmm. not have hard timelines to clean up Doran Wells? Like, how is that a, a pro? I just don't understand any positivity towards that. No, and and especially you know we. 
it's widely acknowledged and recognized we're we're in a very serious climate emergency those wildfires are absolutely connected to that here on Vancouver Island we had significant drought this isn't a time for governments to be saying to oil and gas companies gee how can we help you be more flexible it's time for governments to be saying to oil and gas companies gee how can we help you transition uh, so that you're producing energy that isn't uh, putting our climate at risk. And what we aren't seeing from this government is that emphasis on a vision for a future for BC and a future for uh, the people working in these industries to transition to a, uh, a healthy and sustainable future. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a disappointment all around that this was put into a miscellaneous statutes bill it was disappointing to see every other member of the House vote in favor of it. <laughs> um, and it's really disappointing because it's a part of an, a larger lack of vision from this government in terms of recognizing we're shaping the future with the decisions we make in here. And when we make decisions like that, I don't think that's the future we want to be shaping. All right, well, that's actually a nice way to kind of transition to the other thing I really wanted to get into, and that's talking about freedom of information here because there's this proposal on the table um, that, uh, you know, includes things like possibly implementing a fee for just filing an FOI request. Uh, somehow, when the Premier was asked about this earlier this afternoon, John Horgan kind of said, well, that's not necessarily what's happening. We just have the ability to put in a fee. We're not actually saying there's going to be a fee. Well, that sounds to me like if this were to pass, there's going to be a fee. And obviously, we've heard it from the Privacy Commissioner itself, this is going to be a, a, a way to allow this NAP government to be less transparent. I mean, as an opposition member here, as a, a member of the Green Party here, like, how concerned are you about seeing something like this even being proposed, let alone finding out whether or not it goes through yet? I'm concerned on so many fronts. And uh, I'll start with, we had a report from the committee that reviewed this act in 2016. They came forward with about 11 recommendations. And as I outlined in my second reading speech, this, uh, the, these amendments are actually the opposite of what was recommended by the legislative committee in 2016. So that's one mm -hmm. giant concern that I have. Number two, there is currently another committee that's been struck uh, and with the task of reviewing this legislation and to come back to the legislature with a report next June. And instead of waiting for that legislative committee's report and all of the input that they would get from experts and from the public and from, you know, the Freedom of Information Commissioner and uh, media, uh, the government went ahead and made massive amendments to this bill while this committee is still supposed to do its work. And uh, my, my colleague, Adam Olson, uh, raised the point of, of privilege on this. And in fact, the, the decision, while technically it was ruled um, that he raised it too late, the, the speaker did say that uh, government needs to respect the work of legislative committees. And then third, of course, the implications of these amendments are very significant to making government less transparent, making it more difficult for public to access what is their information. It's public information. The government is a public body. It's paid for by the public. It's meant to serve the public. And the public should have access to what information government is using to make decisions, how they're making those decisions, 
why they're making those decisions, who's at the table. All of that information should be available because those decisions are being made on behalf of the public of British Columbia. I'll get your take on this. Uh, so it says the province uh, processes somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 freedom of information requests on an annual basis. They cost about $3,000 for each uh, request. So this is clearly a, a, a cost, right? There's, a, there's a obvious an issue when it comes to the taxpayer having to pay for this. But I guess one of the things that's being brought forward is, okay, maybe there's a way to deter some of the chronic users of this system, people who are putting in uh, far too many. There was talk about one reporter at Bob Mackin who put forward almost 400 requests in the year of 2020. Obviously, that's kind of an abuse of the system in some way. I guess, do you think there needs to be a way to maybe deter some of those chronic users of this program? Um, like, there, there has to be some sort of a middle ground, because I can understand how that's mm -hmm. kind of an annoyance from the government, but what they're proposing is obviously taking things away very much a step too far. So here's what uh, a really good solution to this is, which is proactive disclosure. And uh, it didn't used to be that uh, the public could see, for example, uh, how MLAs were, uh, what kind of expenses were being claimed by MLAs. But now you can go and you can see all of the expenses, travel expenses that MLAs claim. It didn't used to be that you could see how constituency offices uh, spent their budgets. Now that is publicly available and it's proactively disclosed. So nobody has to make an FOI request to see that information. The government could look at the range of FOI requests that they get, look for patterns and say, okay, we can proactively disclose all of this information. And that would mean that we wouldn't need FOI requests coming in and all of that processing time and, and money to go into that. And in doing so, government does what it needs to do, which is be more transparent, which is be more effective at earning the trust of the public and demonstrating to the public, here's the information that you have a right to know about how we're operating, and we're going to give it to you without you even having to ask. This is a, a, a very interesting thing that's going through right now. I, I hear a lot of people raising their voice, and I wonder if it's going to be enough pressure to see it go uh, in a, some different direction. But hey, whenever I look at a, an NDP majority that we have right now, uh, I got to think this is probably more than likely to pass unless, again, we start to see that public pressure ramp up. And that, I guess, kind of goes back to the experience you felt last night, doesn't it? You know, it, it does, Jeff, and I, I think one of the things that we often remind our colleagues in this building is that uh, they're not here to represent a party to the people. They're here to represent people in the legislature. And in doing so, we would hope to see members of the other caucuses vote for the outcomes that they want to see. Um, but what we see instead is uh, caucuses vote as a block. <laughs> and uh, even when it seems that there's some discomfort amongst the members of those caucuses voting that way, uh, they do that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that we can always strive to be better in here. And I think that the public absolutely needs to let uh, MLAs know how they feel about this legislation and what they expect from us. Um, and I hope that uh, all of my colleagues will take that input very seriously.
Sonia, always appreciate you coming on here. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Um, and uh, we'll hopefully have a chance to connect pretty darn soon. But uh, thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Jeff. Always such a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Awesome. That is Sonia Furstino right there, the leader of the BC Green Party.